The Trump Show returns to Texas. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast here in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and traveling the entire great state to bring you every detail about the big trip to Texas for Donald Trump is Jeremy Wallace at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. Hello. Yeah, you have no doubt that I will be in Conroe for this one, right? You know, it's like, yeah, I, I don't miss Trump rallies. I go to all of them. <laughs> How many? About 20 so far? Yeah, I'm... Uh, in your career? This will be number uh, the 19th Trump rally or, you know, speechifying thing uh, that I've been to since uh, 2012. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about what he undoubtedly will say uh, in just a bit. But I, I want to start with some context about what Mr. Trump is walking into here in Texas. You know, he's coming to rally the troops for his preferred candidates, right? We'll tell you about who the speaker lineup is. It looked like uh, ACL or as the screaming headline in the Houston Chronicle said, it's like Coachella for GOP politicians. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you, you know, when they put out those posters for ACL that has everybody's names yep. in different sizes, yeah. it, it would be interesting if they had a, it'd be interesting if they had a poster like that for this event where maybe Sid Miller's name is real big and Dan Patrick's name is real small and it could be real petty as far as who's, <laughs> whose name is what font. Um, but, but, but look, here's what's going on. This is a Texas Republican primary. Yeah. And so you have – and of course Democrats are having their primary. But the energy really is – and I think this is fair – on the Republican side because they have contested primaries at the top of the ballot. Right. I mean, there are there are lots of primaries for uh, state house races and other stuff on both sides of the partisan divide. But as far as the energy, the the party that has it right now in the primary is Republicans. You've got uh, a heated primary, and we'll see if it's actually competitive, but a heated one for uh, Governor Abbott's position, for Agriculture Commissioner, which I mentioned Sid Miller, um, and, a, and a whole bunch of other things that are going on on the Republican side. Real infighting with the grassroots and the Speaker of the House, Dave Phelan, with the grassroots and the governor over whether there ought to be a special session. And so as Trump comes to Texas – he is walking right into that arena where Republicans are really having it out with each other. And hey, it's what Republicans do around here. This is a lot of my career yeah. is covering Republicans, I would say Republican on Republican political violence. Well, and, so and, let me give and, you an example. Yeah, particularly mm -hmm. where he's going, right? Montgomery County yes. is where a lot of this, like, you know, Republicans are eating each other <laughs> in Montgomery County right now. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of boos or applause Trump gets, depending on which politicians he mentions from the stage. Right. So let's talk about crowd reactions. You may have seen this in North Texas, uh, in Allen, uh, and there are these grassroots conservative groups all over the place. Um, Katrina Pearson, who was formerly a national spokesperson for President Trump, people who uh, go to see her speak at an event, they just assume that she has a direct line to Trump, right? That, that she could pick up the phone and she's got him on speed dial and can make uh, a case to him about something. Uh, Katrina Pearson, who I first covered years ago in Dallas when she was one of the founding members and leaders of the Dallas Tea Party, which at the time was the biggest tea party in America. The Dallas Tea Party was the one. Uh, she and a few other people kind of led the charge on that, including uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ken Emanuelson, uh, who I believe she used to date, if you want all the cheese may out of Dallas. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is that people think that she has the, the inside uh, track with Trump. So if people go see her speak, 
they're going to make their case to her about a case she ought to make to Trump about something. And here's what was asked of Katrina Pearson at this event. Again, and the, the name of the group was We the People Allen. Uh, you know, it's like it's like grassroots uh, uh, America, we the people in Tyler. It's like an offshoot of that. Uh, this woman stood up to ask whether Pearson could just tell Trump that he needs to pull his endorsement from Governor Abbott. And we've heard a lot about this over the last couple of months, right? There are grassroots Republicans who want to see a special session on vaccine mandates, uh, on uh, what they say is the genital mutilation of young children when we're talking about uh, gender-affirming care for kids who are transitioning from one gender to the other. Uh, a lot of energy in the grassroots of the GOP on that, but I'm not sure how big that group is, but there, there's a lot of uh, intensity, or there is intensity about it. Uh, listen to this. This woman stands up and says, can't you just tell Trump to pull that endorsement, and, and you've and you got to listen close. The audio is not great, but you can definitely make out the fact that the crowd agrees with this woman. These are hardcore Republicans. They agree that Abbott doesn't really deserve the endorsement of Trump. You've made a, a great case for as to why Governor Abbott is not to be reelected, does not deserve our vote. I am wondering if you could make that same case to Trump yes. so that he can pull his endorsement from Abbott. Real energy there. And it's, you know, a decent sized crowd, but I mean, we're talking about a Republican primary where you know, north of a million people are going to vote, right? So, so that's one crowd in one town. You don't want to overstate what's happening, but these meetings matter a lot actually in these in these Republican primaries because this is the this is the eyeball to eyeball stuff. So people talking to it's the same kind of thing that happens at the Republican Party of Texas uh, convention, right? Um, in f listen to this, Jeremy. After that question was asked, another person shouts out at Pearson to say, "You know what? I was waiting forty five minutes just for that question that, that that you would get that question." Here's what Katrina Pearson has to say about it. Okay, so I'm going to gather there's a general consensus that you want Trump to rescind his avenue. Grassroots Republicans angry with Governor Abbott, but polling that I have seen uh, among some in some Texas House districts on the Republican side, uh, Jeremy, it, it tells me the numbers I've looked at that I, I I'm not making a prediction, but I wouldn't be shocked if Abbott wins the primary with no runoff. Not a prediction, but we'll see. Yeah, right. I, so I would be surprised I, yeah. if he doesn't. That's that's you know it's like again the one thing that Abbott's doing he's still cultivating some good Republican areas like you know he goes to TPPF and he has that crowd yeah. uh, still right. in his corner he's talked to the you know business you know community Republicans mm -hmm. he's got those folks you know if he, I, I tell you if he's under sixty percent you know yeah. to me that's going to be a big story you know like there is no way he should be under sixty percent against two candidates who just aren't well yeah. known outside of DFW. It reminds me of when some folks in the Republican Party decided that John Cornyn was a rhino, Republican yeah. in name only. Uh, and this is you know, when, when a lot of the grassroots folks were calling themselves 
Tea Party activists. I don't know that they really use that term as much anymore. Some do. Uh, but in the rise of the Tea Party, they there were um, seven or eight candidates who ran against Cornyn in that primary, and he still smoked them all with 60%, right? It was a, there's a lot of noise, and this, this is uh, trying to Trying to say, this is a, a phrase that Steve Bannon uses since we're talking Trump here. Bannon says, don't listen to the noise, listen to the signal. And it seems like the, on that point, if you think about what's happening in the Republican Party and the kind of uh, uh, broad appeal that some of those folks like Cornyn and Abbott have, um, if you're listening to the noise, you might get it uh, twisted and think that, wow, this is really competitive. When it may not be, a lot of times these things are just loud and they're not necessarily big. And this is one of the problems that we in our uh, profession uh, have to uh, figure out a, a way to deal with is, and there's been, there've been a lot of discussions about this, media tends to amplify those loudest voices, yeah. right? It's sort of same thing that we were talking about with Dan Crenshaw, where he still, I'm sure, enjoys pretty broad support in his district among Republicans, but there are some who are very loud who are angry with him. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, it reminds me, I heard this great advice in Sarasota, Florida, once at a county commission meeting where, you know, the county executive says, you know, look, there's 200 people here very angry about whatever this project was that was before the county commission. But just remember, there's 500,000 people outside of this chamber who didn't have the time to come to this meeting. <laughs> it's like there's another 500,000 people you're trying to make, 500,000 people you're making a decision for. And I think it goes to with these types of events too, like that Woodlands, uh, you know, forum we talked about a couple weeks ago where, you know, mm. the Alan West, Don Huffines and crew were all kind of ginning up the crowd. There's three 300 right. people in that room who are devoted to never vote for Greg Abbott. And I always try to remind people that's 300 people, you know, in one room, there's, you know, clearly 29 million Texans who were not in that room. Uh, and so you have to just kind of put that perspective onto everything. And these types of meetings, like in Allen, it's like, yeah, they're, the people with pitchforks in, you know, uh, in March on the yeah. mm -hmm. Capitol, they, they're louder than ever, but that doesn't mean there's more of them. They're just loud. They're right. very loud. This topic of Abbott's uh, endorsement from President Trump uh, was definitely avoided on KTRH radio this morning, where the host who is interviewing uh, President Trump, who's promoting his Houston events, uh, Michael Berry, uh, who I used to work with there at KTRH, didn't ask him about any of that, even though uh, Berry and some of the other conservative hosts uh, in the state have been very critical of Abbott for the same reasons that were articulated at that meeting up in Allen that we just told you about. Uh, instead, Mr. Trump was asked by Barry about things like the event that's coming up in Conroe and the deal at the Toyota Center as well. And he was asked about whether Hillary Clinton is going to run for president again. Uh, not necessarily. Look, she's a psycho. I think she probably will at some point. She's a total nut job. And I, nobody knows that better than me because we found all the evidence where she made up Russia, Russia, Russia. And so she could. Who knows? I hope so. I hope it's true. But uh, we'll see. We'll see soon enough. I, I don't I, I just look at our country, how far we've come down in the wrong direction. And when you look at uh, inflation, that was that was a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, what they did. Once they kill the energy industry, you're going to have inflation. I mean, they just killed the energy. I had Energy independence. Nobody benefited more than Texas, by the way, as you know. Yes, I do. But we had energy independence. Now he's negotiating with OPEC and they're begging for oil because we don't have any oil on the East Coast. And they're going to end up getting it from Russia. 
Russia with uh, Michael Berry really grilling President Trump this morning, my voice dripping with sarcasm. All of this is uh, about the Trump endorsement. I wouldn't be shocked. I'm thinking of the Republican primary. It's, It's about the Trump endorsement for Abbott, for Ken Paxton, for Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick as well. Listen to his latest television ad, which he just launched. This is the first one of the election cycle. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a principled conservative fighting for Texas. Running for lieutenant governor in 2014, I pledged to ban sanctuary cities and fund border security at historic levels. I kept my promise. This year, I approved funding to build the wall. Texas must secure the border because Biden won't, and we must stop those here illegally from voting. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, endorsed by President Donald Trump. I am giving him my complete and total endorsement. The ending of that advertisement, Jeremy, it doesn't even say, I'm Dan Patrick and I approve this message. It, it's that Donald Trump approves of Lieutenant Governor Patrick and how many of those people who will be on stage with Trump this weekend in MoCo, in Conroe, how many of them will uh, just eat it up and play it in their advertisements as Trump on that stage perhaps says, Sid Miller has my total endorsement. Greg Abbott has my total endorsement. It'll be that over and over again. Plus, they'll play the greatest hits like calling Hillary Clinton nuts and talking about Russia and all of that. Yeah. And and what a boon for those Republicans running statewide, right? There's no accident there in Montgomery County, which, you know, if you look at all the counties that have at least 100,000 voters or more in them, uh, Montgomery County is just stands out as the most rock solid Republican area. They had 70% uh, people sure. came out and voted for Trump in that election, mm-hmm. way more than every place else. You know, with, with places like Collin County and Tarrant County becoming far more competitive and flipping in case of Tarrant County, it's like you end up with Montgomery County really is the headwater or, or, or the or, or the key spot now for Republicans yes, to kind of it, hold on to. And so, if Trump is promoting these guys at this event, it, you know, he could have twenty thousand people there. Uh, you know, diehard Trump fans. He's telling it to them, but he's also telling it on live streams that are, you know, going to, I know this sounds crazy to some people, but there's a lot of, you know, sports bars and whatever around the state Mm -hmm. where groups of Republicans get together to watch Trump. And and all around Texas, so somewhere in Brownwood, Texas, they're going to be gathered around a TV, you know, with a bunch of people hearing Trump say, no, no, I love Greg Abbott. You know, he's been my buddy on the border since, you know, when I can remember, you know, affirming Ken Paxton. Those affirmations are so important, like you mentioned, because absentee voting is happening right now. And early voting is a couple weeks away. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, once when I was uh, hosting, guest hosting the Mark Davis show in Dallas-Fort Worth, um, this was a little while back, um, the the, uh, the question of the morning was whether, and think about this in, you mentioned sports bars, this is what made me think of it. Um, the question on this particular Monday morning um, was whether people had watched the Dallas Cowboys game or a Trump rally that, that overlapped the, the evening before. Right, the people who are conservative Republican voters in DFW, where Cowboys football is religion, actually had to think about which one of those things they were going to watch. Right, and so, so it it makes me it makes me think 
that all these other arguments, the, the different issues that we laid out at the beginning with these folks who are grassroots Republicans who say they're upset about this and this and this and this and this when it comes to Greg Abbott, I wonder if it just all gets canceled out because you have a clip of President Trump saying that Greg Abbott has my complete and total endorsement. By the way, Abbott doing some interesting fundraising in an interesting place isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. If you've lived in Texas for any long length of time, you've heard many a Texas Republican say, don't California my Texas, right? Well, mm -hmm. you know, Governor Abbott's been among them who have used that phrase and also, you know, been the first to criticize California for all of its politics and, and you know, its economic issues and whatever else. Isn't it the worst? It's it's in a total tailspin and nobody wants to live there? Yeah, exactly. There's one point where, like, he put out a video back in uh, November, uh, I think it was November, where, like, he was trying to encourage shipping companies to move to Texas, you know, to use our ports. And at the end, he says, you know, escape California. Everybody else is, you know, of course. And so that, you know, leads us to this week where Governor Abbott went to California you know, to raise money for his campaign in his reelection, where he was mm -hmm. charging as much as $25,000 a pop for people to kind of have, you know, dinner with him and an autographed copy of his book. Uh, and so it, it just kind of rounds out the idea that, of course, like a lot of, you know, Texas Republicans just have disdain for the politics of California, but boy, do they like that money. <laughs> they they are all drawn that. there for the same reason all those businesses are in California. There's a lot of money to be made in California. Well, there's all this talk about inflation, but I would remind people that dollars spend the same no matter which state they come yeah. from, right? So, so, so um, both sides raise money in all kinds of places. Yeah. I mean, if you pack, Ken Paxton was in Florida with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, their big fundraiser. Uh, you have Democrats who get money from out of state. It's all. It's the first thing that people criticize on social media. It's the first thing that people talk about if they don't like the person. Yeah. And, if they and like Abbott's the person, case, they think it, they don't care about it. Yeah. In Abbott's case, he's raised, you know, <laughs> he's already raised $1.5 million out of California for this re-election campaign. You know, it's like, and one of his biggest donors, if you, if you rank his top five donors in the entire, you know, country, uh, is one guy from California, uh, Ed Roski Jr., who's a part owner of the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, like, he donates to, you know, to Abbott better than almost anybody else in the world except for like a couple of folks. And so it's clearly a great place for Greg Abbott to raise money and to get people fired up. You know, again, maybe some of them are just like, oh, look, our governor's liberal and a Democrat and we can't well, get our money out. So we'll just mm -hmm. hand it to the first Texan who rolls through town with a good pitch. <laughs> a very interesting thing about California. Um, and I like to compare the size of, and scope of the states. You know, this is the same kind of thing that these politicians are doing. I'm just doing it in a way that's a little more even handed. Um, you know that the largest political gathering on earth is at least the way they put it is the Republican Party of Texas Convention, right? As far as delegate count, how many vendors, all that sort of stuff. But you know, there are more Republicans in California than there are in Texas. There's just way more Democrats than there are Republicans in California, yeah. right? And so all of those people who are, they feel put upon because they live in the quote unquote People's Republic of California uh, and they think that their state government is way too liberal, they still want to be active in politics. And so one of the ways that they would do that is say, hey, I support guys like Greg Abbott. I support people like Ron DeSantis. I support people like uh, you know, whoever the people are who are Republicans running in California. The reason I can't think of their names is because they don't win statewide anymore. But fact of the fact of the matter is that they want to be involved and they want to back 
winners, right? And they want to have an impact, especially if they're larger donors. They want let's talk about donor class people. Not these are not people giving five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars. These are people who can write a check for six figures. They want to be real players in places where there are chances to win. Because one thing about political uh, giving, if you're any kind of a sophisticated uh, contributor, um, is you think about an investment. Yep. Right. And and there's a lot of those business folks, they would have business dealings in Texas and they would have regulatory issues that they're interested in Texas. But they're also uh, partisan folks who want to see a win for the GOP. Well, and there's another important factor. Of course, Abbott wants to raise money there, but there's another important factor to be there. So the Lincoln Club of Orange County, California, is kind, mm-hmm. is like a must kind of stop for anybody who has kind of what wants to have a national profile. Uh, this group, like Abbott got to speak to them, you know, back on Monday. Uh, but that group has also had Ron DeSantis, uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina. Yeah, Tom Cotton went through there. Our own Dan Crenshaw from Houston, you know, he was out there. Uh, so everybody's – just in the last year, everybody makes a beeline to this thing because like you said, they know that the Republican – uh, in Orange County, which is a you know still a red section of you know California, that is a key yeah. point to oh. win over if you're going to really mm-hmm. kind of build a national profile and, and be something more on the national stage. On the Democratic side of the ledger, uh, we do have Congressman, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who is keeping a focus on the border, and I find it fascinating, Jeremy. I'm trying to remember any campaign cycle uh, in the last 10 or 15 years where the uh, Democrat who was running for governor of this state, some names I can remember quicker than others, the same <laughs> as with the Republicans and Republicans in California. Um, but but I'm trying to remember any of them putting a focus on the border. This is something that they would talk about if you asked, yeah. right? But Beto is keeping it up. He wants to talk about the border. Uh, and he sounds in some ways, as we pointed out before, in some ways, he sounds like Alan West in, in this key respect that they are both concerned about the treatment of people who have been deployed to the border in the National Guard. Uh, the fact that we saw this spike in suicides among the people who are in the National Guard, uh, the fact that they're not getting uh, maybe the training and certainly not getting the supplies that they need. Beto was on uh, MSNBC with Lawrence O'Donnell, uh, and they were talking about that. What can you tell us about what you found uh at the border, the the situation with the National Guard there. Lawrence, the first thing that I want to tell you is that these men and women are the absolute best of us. They signed up to serve this state and this country. They were there in 2017 when Hurricane Harvey, the biggest storm to ever hit this state, drowned communities like Port Arthur and Rockport in Houston, Texas. They've been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. They know what they've signed up for, and they're willing to serve, and they do so honorably and admirably. But 10,000 of them have been called up with 10 days' notice, forced to leave family, jobs, kids, their communities, to be mere window dressing for the governor's reelection campaign. Those aren't my words. Those are the things they have told me. Their pay has been delayed. The governor funded this by cutting their earned tuition benefit. This is how they afford to go to college. He cut that in half. Um, They have not been properly equipped. And most of them that I've spoken to have not encountered a migrant or an undocumented border crosser in the three or four months that they've been there. 
Texas Military Department, uh, late on Friday, put out uh, a statement. Uh, they called it an explainer, setting the record straight sort of thing uh, about uh, what has been said about the border by Alan West, by Beto O'Rourke. Uh, I didn't see direct dispute of a lot of the things that they have been outlining, and you saw that that was put out late on a Friday. And as journalists, I, we can tell you, there's a reason that a state agency would do it that way so that you wouldn't necessarily take a real hard look at it. Um, it, it as one, put, as one uh, source put it to me, cowardly, the way it has been addressed. Governor Abbott had says that he says that uh, people are politicizing what's happening on the border, which is the laugh I needed today to hear that from him. Uh, here's the thing that I want to talk about from Beto's interview on MSNBC. He got into the question of what's going to happen in this election as Democrats try to win in an environment in which the election laws have been changed, right? We just had a huge fight about that all last year, eight months to pass this bill, Senate Bill 1, which, as we have pointed out here, even Republicans can't agree still to this day that it's a good bill, right? Sid Miller, who will be on stage with Trump and all those guys in MoCo, he says it's terrible. (laughs) He told me on the radio in Dallas that they weakened our election law, right? Meantime, other Republicans say, no, no, we secured the ballot. It's a big, complicated, messy bill. And Lawrence O'Donnell wanted to ask uh, Beto about his assessment of whether Republicans are also being hurt at the, you know, when they go to vote, are they also seeing maybe their votes, imagine this, suppressed by this law? Do we know if if the current state of disruption affects uh, Democratic voters and Republican voters equally? We don't know for sure. What we do know is what's taking place is exactly what was predicted by opponents of this voter suppression bill. Lawrence, in this instance, Texas is requiring you, if you require, if you request a mail-in ballot, to use the exact same form of ID that you used when you first registered to vote. That could have been two years ago. It could have been 20 years ago. And if you don't remember that, your mail-in ballot request is rejected. We're seeing rejection rates in some counties of up to 50%. Now, I think it's really important for those who want to make sure that they can vote in this primary election, if they are physically and from a healthcare perspective able to vote in person to do that, because this voter suppression tactic is incredibly successful at denying people the ability to vote. Two main things that I would like to say about all of what was there, because there's a lot to unpack. And some of our Democratic listeners will not like what I'm about to say. Um, And that's okay. There's room for disagreement. If we always agree, Republican and Democrat, uh, moderate and everybody else in between, if if we always agree, it means some of us are not thinking, right? (laughs) So, so, So here's the deal. When he says that, hey, you've got all these people seeing their mail ballot applications rejected. When he says, you need to make every effort to just go vote in person if you can, to me, that signals a real shift. In 2020, there was, and I get why, but there was a real push by Democrats to take everything online and to vote by mail if you can, uh, or if you if you feel that you need to because you feel threatened by the coronavirus and all of that. And I, and I, and I understand all that. I don't want to downplay anybody's concerns. Um, but, but it's a real shift in the attitude. We still have Omicron raging, although I'm sure you have an update on the numbers. We can figure out exactly where we're at. But we're certainly not past the pandemic. That's fair to say. But the fact that we're still in a pandemic is not keeping Beto O'Rourke, who for now is the face of the Democratic Party in Texas, for sure, right? He's the leader, right? I mean, it, 
if you ask anybody who's the top Democrat in Texas, would any of them be, be even able to name the chairman of the party? Yeah. No. Yeah. Beto O'Rourke, Beto even though there's a race for that, and we'll cover it, of course, coming up, but, but Beto O'Rourke is the face of the Democratic Party in Texas. He is universally known, as you have pointed out in your coverage. He's the guy setting the tone for this and saying, if you can go vote in person, do it. And you also talked to him, I think it was right after we did the show last week, about the fact that Democrats, uh, you know, in his campaign, the volunteers who are, who are going to be working to help him uh, contact 2 million voters is their goal for February. Is that correct? Was that, was that the yep. number? Um, that they're going to do a lot of that in person. And I have had academics in this state, particularly in Austin, tell me that it didn't matter that Democrats were not reaching out to people in person when Republicans were. My evidence for that being wrong is the election result. Uh, you know, when you had, uh, you know, d Democrats do decently in other parts of the country, in some places around this state where they did reach out to people in person, guess what? They won their races. Um, and th those were in state house races and in some other examples as well. Um, but you have Beto saying, look, if you want to take territory, and, th and there's a reason that campaign, that's adopted from the military. Campaign is a military term. If you want to take over territory, you have to do what? You have to put boots on the ground. You can't do it all on the air, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and the chances of you getting somebody to come out to vote for you, if you show up at their doorstep, or even have a campaign worker showing up on the doorstep, the chance of that person getting out to vote for you goes up astronomically. You know, it's like, even if you disagree with them on their doorstep, they like remember your name and that you took the time. You know, I've seen it happen many a time where you go, well, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I appreciate you came here. So I'm going to go, I'll support yes. you in the election. And those people will vote, you know? So yeah, it's like, you know, I think, I think you're right. You've nailed it. Beto has kind of set a different kind of a tone going into this. If they're going door to door and knocking on people's doors in Laredo and Brownsville and McAllen, you know, like it has such a different feel to the entire election than we saw two years ago uh, when you, know, you never saw the states, you know, the U.S. Senate candidates knocking on any doors, right? Their campaigns were never on anybody's doorstep. And guess what? There was no energy in that race. Zilch. Zero. It's like, and the reason is because you weren't talking to people. You couldn't be face-to-face -face with them. And it turns out not everybody cares about Zoom, nor will ever be on a Zoom. Uh, and <laughs> no. certainly not like the million voters you're going to need, you know, to get in your corner if you're going to even try to win a statewide race. Touching voters directly, face-to-face -face contact. And I went along in 2020 to, to observe uh, Republican block walkers in Texas House districts to see how they were doing it. And it wasn't rocket science. Yeah. It, it was it was it, it was them wearing masks and being respectful, knocking on the door, then stepping back six feet, keeping the mask on. And if the person felt comfortable talking to them, they did. And if they didn't feel comfortable, they just moved on to the next house. Yep. It was that simple. And 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 one of the things that was going on at that time was there were, were there were a lot of people who were really happy to have anybody show up. Of course. Because they'd been isolated for a while, for especially for a lot of older folks. But I did also see some older folks who felt uncomfortable with it, and they were just respectful and they moved on. But I think to your point, folks were, gl were glad to have interaction uh, with with these campaigns. I mean, they, they wanted to hear about candidates. So they knew uh, some of the things about uh, candidates, obviously, at the top of the ticket, but maybe they weren't as informed about what was happening in a state Senate race or in a state uh, House district, for example. Now, one of the other things that I think goes, uh, again, to this point, uh, Democrats getting aggressive 
about dealing with the reality, and I'll, again, some Democrats won't like what I'm about to say, dealing with the reality of the election law and uh, coming to grips with the fact that this is the law you're going to have to live under if you want to try to win this election, right? If, if you want to be competitive, these are the rules. That doesn't mean that these things shouldn't be challenged in court or fought in the legislature, but as long as they are the rules, you're going to have to deal with it, right? And so, and, and by the way, I've heard from some Democrats who say absolutely 100% to that point. Some really agree with that, and they say, you know, we want to go around the state putting on clinics about you know, how people deal with the election law in Texas. You may have seen this this morning. The Secretary of State's office, of course, for the last week or two weeks or whatever it's been, has been telling people that because of supply chain issues, they can't get mail-in ballot uh, or excuse me voter registration cards to people right you saw this and <laughs> texas democrats this morning the tdp put out a thing saying that they were starting a fundraiser to uh, push to print a half million voter registration cards and just send them out across the state i had some democrats say to me well that's silly on the democrats part because guess what some republicans are going to get those cards that, that that doesn't matter the point is people should be able to you know register to vote no matter what party they're right. in, let me put let me put it this way, Jeremy, because you know I try to avoid hyperbole about this stuff. People talk about Jim Crow 2.0 on the on the Democratic side. This is the new Jim Crow, Bull Connor, and all that. And we heard President Biden saying some of that. On the Republican side, they say, "Oh no, that's all BS. This is just securing the ballot." I like to think that if you're a constituent and you're a voter in this state, state government should treat you like a customer. Yeah. Right. So, but, you know, think of it like and how many times do my Republican friends and your Republican friends say uh, that government should run more like a business? If you tell me if I'm way off in this analogy, say you were going to pay your electric bill. If your electric bill included the amount of bureaucracy that it takes to register to vote and go vote, the person trying to pay their bill would have. 10 to 15 excuses for why it didn't get paid. Yep. yep. Right. So, so, so think, think about, okay, you go right now, Sarah, you have an electric bill, you have a natural gas bill, you have, you have your utilities, all this stuff that you got to pay. You probably, do you just go on a website and pay it? Yes. For most of that stuff, you can just go straight there. You can just go straight there and do that. And you're, it's done. Like it's finished. Right. And I, I could sit there and pay my bills in 10 minutes, all of them. Probably, probably faster than that. But if you want to register to vote in Texas, what you have to do, and imagine if this is the way you paid your bill. I want to pay my bill, so what I have to do is I have to go on the website, find the PDF, find where it's even posted on the website, print out the PDF, fill out the PDF by hand with a pen, put it in an envelope, send it to uh, someone in the county who then sends it to the state, right? All of those things have to happen. Like, let's say I wrote out a check that I had to send to the county, and then they would turn around and send the check to the state. Anywhere along the line, it could get lost. The address might have been not exactly right. Postage might have been wrong on the thing. There are 40, this is not partisan, there are 40 states where they do online voter registration. And do you hear all of these uh, uh, complaints from any legitimate source about, oh, wow, there's so much fraud in all this voter registration? It's not true. If you can exchange money online and on your phone, but you can't register to vote, that makes 
no sense whatsoever. Yeah, we we definitely have not simplified registering to vote in Texas, and it's been no. like that for a long time. But here's the good news for Democrats, at least they're, they're trying to kind of like look to, well, how do we deal with this? Well, it, exactly how you dealt with it in 2014. You remember coming out of that presidential election when they said, okay, regist- registering people in Texas has become so difficult. You know, people are afraid of getting felonies and stuff like that. So what did Democrats do? Democratic groups, liberal groups, started going, okay, we're going to go, we're going to use the system that they've set up. It's going to suck, but we're going to go learn how to be volunteer deputy registrars in every you know county it. in this state, sit through all these meetings and all the things and sign people up the way they're telling us we have to do it. You know, And so they did that. And look what we have now. We now have 17 million people registered to vote in Texas. We've added over 3 million people to the voter registration rolls you know, since 2014, which is insane, an insane growth rate compared to the previous, say, 35 years of Texas's history. <laughs> so it's like, it can be done. It's like, yeah, there's hurdles in the way, but you can address those hurdles someday if you take the majority back in any of the legislative right. chambers. Until then, all right. you but can in the do meantime, is play you by win. the rules. Right. You know, the Republicans right. set the rules of this game, and there's Democrats can do two things. They can either play by those rules or don't. You know, and if you play by those rules, you have a shot of still winning the game. Uh, if you don't play by them, then you're just going to lose. Yes. It, stop. And here's the part that the Democrats who listen will really hate. Stop whining. And it's, <laughs> you, have, you have rules that you have to live by. And it sounds like maybe they're starting to do that because you heard Beto O'Rourke say, we're going to get people out in person. You were there to talk to him uh, near the Capitol. When he was talking about that, and he said it on MSNBC, if you see or have any doubt that you're, and this uh, this is not part of this, this should be for Democrats or Republicans. If you had your ballot, uh, your mail-in ballot application rejected, or you think that it might, Beto's over there saying, just go vote in person. Yep. If you can, because guess what? There's too much room for error in this system, where again. The check to pay your uh, electricity bill might never get to where it's supposed to go. Well, and I'm and con- what do you do about it in the meantime? And I'm constantly reminded, you know, and I, I've said it on the show before, like, you know, I keep remembering Lyle Larson, the state representative from San Antonio during the debate yeah, on the voter mm-hmm. registrations, on the voter bills, yep. you know, saying, wait a minute, aren't the majority of people who vote absentee Republican? Why are making it harder for our people? To get their information in. It's Republicans too, and probably more Republicans than Democrats who are like, you know, getting these ballots rejected. The odds are just in that favor. You know, so you're in this weird spot where it's like Republicans have had made it kind of made it harder on their base supporters to vote. And so maybe if you're the Democrats, you're like, hey, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> thanks for helping us out. It's like, well, keep voting in person and y'all just do the absentee stuff and we'll see how that matches up at the end of the day. (laughs) Uh, This story out of South Texas, uh, there have been some uh, developments with uh, Congressman Henry Cuellar, this investigation uh, that seems to surround him now, the FBI raiding his house and all of that. Following the show last week, uh, Representative Cuellar did post a statement on social media. It's a little vague, which is what happens when the FBI comes knocking. Yeah. The politicians don't really fill in a lot of the blanks. But he did say, he did say definitively that this will show whatever the investigation is. And he says he's cooperating. That's what they always say. The first thing is that we're cooperating with any investigation. That's always, as one uh, veteran uh, of uh, Austin politics said the other day, when the politician says, we are happy 
to, uh, to, to cooperate with any investigation, quote, that's the first lie, close quote. <laughs> I'm not saying that about Cuellar, but you get it. This is, this is just for perspective. Uh, in his, this was uh, pretty definitive. He said, it's going to show no wrongdoing, quote, by me. Right, so he listen to uh, his words here. There, and we talked about this often. How how deliberate people are with these statements. Listen carefully to what Quayar says. I appreciate the many calls, texts, tweets, and messages of support. The outpouring of support from so many in our community is humbling, and I'd like to personally thank you for having my back. As I said last week, I'm fully cooperating with law enforcement and committed to ensuring that justice and the law is upheld. There is an ongoing investigation that will show that there was no wrongdoing on my part. As an attorney, I know firsthand that the legal system is a pillar of our democracy. I pride myself on being your congressman and always doing things honestly, ethically, and the right way. Jeremy, let me make sure I got the quote right. He, he said, no wrongdoing, quote, on my part, close quote. <laughs> yeah. that, that doesn't mean there was no wrongdoing here, right? Yeah. FBI shows up and, you know, one thing that I failed to say about it last week, uh, which is just, uh, it's good perspective in thinking about these things because you, you and I have covered lots of these cases where uh, the feds swoop in on whatever local or federal official, uh, particularly in Texas and other places, you may have dealt with some of it in Florida. Um, one thing for sure is that the FBI doesn't make a high profile move like that until they are pretty far along in the case. Right. They usually, and we know this from reporting on the stuff over the years, the FBI will tip off the local TV stations that, hey, this is a place you ought to be at this time. And then, of course, you see the FBI, the people in the FBI windbreakers on, on the local news. Oh, hey, they're at so-and-so's house. And now there are all these questions about exactly you know, what's going on surrounding this person. But, you know, the federal conviction rate, if you get charged by the feds for something, it's it's like ninety nine percent. Almost everybody who is prosecuted by the federal government is is going to be convicted or have to work out some kind of a plea deal, right? I have only covered one politician in Texas who was charged by the FBI, had the federal trial, and all of that, and they got off and are still in office. You know who it is? Who's that? Still in office today. This is a good one. It's a little. If if you're not in the particular market, it. Um, when I worked in Dallas, one of the most fun people to cover was Commissioner John Wiley Price, who people say that that man runs Dallas County. Um, yeah, he was he was uh, the the indictment I think was a hundred pages, and you know an indictment doesn't include any evidence; it's just you know accusations of what you did of what you did on and on and on about him. But he he beat the rap. He's still there. Um, we will see what happens with this, Jeremy. But it's interesting that I think from a media perspective on this story, it's been covered as though this is just a Valley thing. This is just a, 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 a excuse me, a Laredo thing, not a Valley thing. This is, I would be, get corrected yeah. about that real fast by our <laughs> South Texas folks. Uh, it's a Laredo thing. But the truth is there's a lot of people in San Antonio who should be very interested in whatever the outcome is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I keep trying to you know express this. Like there's a quarter million people in San Antonio and Bear County who are now in this congressional district. That's you know, 250,000 people you know in the south side and on the east side that this this is their congressman. You know, this is a veteran member of Congress, you know, who like what's ever happening here means that, you know, hey, if, if, if something happens where he's not the congressman, you're going to have you know somebody new trying to figure out ways to help parts of the community that really need help.
You know, if you've been in the south side of San Antonio, they need more help, you know, not just from the federal government, from the state government, the local governments, not just from them, but they, they really do need federal help, too. And so like, as we're doing, when you're seeing some of the stuff coming from the Biden administration, you want to make sure there's somebody in there who can kind of address some of the things to make sure they're hitting these types of communities. And not to, I'm not saying Cuellar's, you know, always been great at that, but this is a case where, mm-hmm. you know, if something happens to Cuellar, that's their representative. That's the people. That's two hundred fifty thousand people in, in San Antonio's South Side and East Side who are going to be like now looking for a new member of Congress to make those cases. One of the things I would say about this, from uh, the from the politics of it, um, number one, people have made the obvious um, uh, comment, which is that the timing for him is terrible. Right? He's in, he's in a primary, competitive. That 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 much is obvious. I think what might be a little more nuanced is that. The kind of voter who is moved to one candidate or the other based on a story like this is somebody who didn't have their mind made up probably, yeah. right? I mean, if you were all for Cuellar, you're going to see the feds come in and you say, well, they're just out to get my guy, right? Or if you're all for Cisneros, Jessica Cisneros is his, uh, his challenger, um, if you see it, you're gonna, you thought he was corrupt already. It doesn't matter, right? But, but somebody who might be on the fence would see it and go, mm, is there something to that? I think, I think the point. same thing – I think the same thing could be true depending on the timing potentially of a federal indictment of mm, maybe our attorney general, Ken Paxton, who the FBI is investigating. Republicans have said about Cuellar that because Cuellar has been critical of the Biden administration on border security stuff, that maybe this is some payback from Biden against Cuellar. I'm not saying that that's what Republicans have said, but let's take that forward into the general election. What will Republicans say? If an indictment is handed up against Ken Paxton, they'll say, well, it's because Paxton is Trump's guy and it's all politically motivated. And I think this, if you have a close race in the uh, primary, you know, for for Cuellar and Cisneros, and then, you know, and an investigation might kind of tip the scales for one of those candidates, I think Republicans would only be worried about a federal indictment of the AG around here if they also thought it's going to be a competitive race for AG where you might have people who are kind of on the fence go, oh, wow, I don't know that I can vote for this guy now. Because again, people who are all in for Paxton, they'll just think it's Biden up to something if there's an indictment. People who are you know, all for the Democrat, whichever uh, Democrat gets the nomination, they will, of course, already think that Paxton is corrupt. And they would have lots of reasons to think that. But it's the people in the middle who might be swayed. And you only care about that if it's a competitive race. Exactly. Well, that is the exact right place to stop this show. I'm done. Do you have any more show in you? No, I, I got, I got. You look, hit. you look, you look like the answer is no, because you got to save up your energy. Yeah, you've got about 48 hours worth of the Trump show ahead of you this it's, weekend. It's going to be a long weekend of you know lots of coverage and lots of conversations, and lots of interviews. So we'll we'll see how it all goes. All right. If you enjoy this show, and we'll have a full recap of the Trump show on our next podcast or not. By the way, I did get some votes in on whether we should have a regular Crenshaw segment on Dan Crenshaw. The answer was no, overwhelmingly. But people do want updates when he makes news. But people but people certainly don't want a regular segment. So, I, okay. I, I like that we get responses from the audience. If you enjoy this show, as it is, and we appreciate your feedback, you should be a subscriber on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you like your uh, podcasts, however you get them, which, whichever platform you like. Use that. And since you like the show so much, 
leave a positive review, give feedback like a thumbs down to a Dan Crenshaw segment, whatever you think. But give us the best rating that you can. We appreciate it. Subscribe to uh, quorumreport.com. There's a subscriptions uh, link right there at the top of the homepage. Same thing for HoustonChronicle.com. And Jeremy and I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.